0: for our interview today and going through your really fascinating professional journey, I couldn't help but think all of the various roles that you've had, many of which I'd have to imagine you could have never guessed at back when you were in school, not the least of which is your current job at LinkedIn, which was founded 2 years after you graduated. You graduated in May 2001 and Reid Hoffman founded LinkedIn in May 2003. It's really like the quintessential example, Anish, as to why new grads should really only focus on what they want to do for the first year, maybe the first year or two after they graduate because things are changing so quickly.
1: So quickly, President Obama has a piece of advice he would often give to interns at the White House that I have really taken to heart. He said, worry less about what you want to be and think more about what you want to do. And for a long time, I worried more about what I wanted to be. A lot of my time after college was based on Really deep conviction I had from earlier into middle school to be a TV reporter, a White House correspondent. I mapped everything to that until suddenly I knew that's not what I wanted to be. And my whole expectation for my career imploded around me. And it was really hard. This was the fall of 2007. It was really, really hard to sort of understand how to piece myself back together because I had been so focused on what I wanted to be. And suddenly realizing I no no longer wanted to be that was existential as an issue. But then I started transitioning into this other mindset of more about what I want to do. And that's where I started to unlock some of these pieces And now allow me to say I am in my dream job at LinkedIn. My every day is helping the world better define, measure, and expand economic opportunity. If you told me that's what I'd be doing in college, I wouldn't have really understood why that was a dream job. But now I do because I've always been someone interested in stories. How we tell them, how they change others, how they change us. All of my jobs have had that skill. I've always been excited about systemic change, world changing change. I'm one of those people that believes you have one life as this person in this place. Why not change the world with it? That's what drew me to journalism, to Obama, to tech, fueled in no small part by how Obama talked about tech and the the sort of naivete I think we could admit we had years ago about tech just being a force for good. I still think technology is a tool unlike any we've had as humans, that if we're deliberate about how we build it and use it, we can change the world for the better. So always about systemic change. And then third, and it took me a while to understand this, I am a big believer in economic opportunity as a prerequisite for human advancement. The reason it took a bit is because that idea is so baked into my life. It's ubiquitous. As someone who is a child of immigrants who came to this country because they wanted for themselves and their kids more opportunity and it's only over time i've understood that to be a driving impulse in the stories i told the speeches i wrote the companies i joined and now in linkedin the way that we can uniquely as you said at the beginning unlock opportunity for more people in more places than ever before and so now i can say confidently for the first time really ever that i am in my dream job and that is not the job I would have ever thought would have been the dream job for me when I graduated college.
0: Sometimes things are so close to us, like the proverbial carton of milk or butter that you're looking for in the fridge that you miss it because it's right there in front yeah. of you. And it takes a number of years and perspective for you to step back and begin to see the picture. So let's. Talk about this dream job. Your title is Head of Strategic Communications. What does that mean at LinkedIn? And what do you do in this role, Anish?
1: You go back to when Reed started LinkedIn. It was in his living room, really built around the idea that everyone should have more ability to build businesses, grow their careers. And one of the ways to do that without having to be entirely dependent on the place you work backing you was to activate your network, the people you knew who could get excited about what you're doing, support what you're doing. And so he starts LinkedIn as just a way for professionals to stay in touch with each other and to meet new professionals who are aligned with your interests. And then as LinkedIn grows over the years, eventually gets acquired by Microsoft, it becomes a bunch of different businesses within the broader LinkedIn platform. And over time, it, it sort of is telling its story in this siloed way each of the businesses, whether it's about hiring or learning, they're all talking to different people in different ways. And so I became one of the first hires, if not the first hire, to really come in to help LinkedIn tell a single, simple story about who we are and how we're impacting the world. And the reason I was excited to do that is as someone who by that point had spent years in economic policy circles with Governor Newsom or Facebook or in the Obama administration, I was eager to hear from LinkedIn, but didn't see LinkedIn showing up. And so when I joined LinkedIn, it was more because I understood there to be a role for LinkedIn in our global conversation about economic opportunity that I could maybe help us achieve. And so when I joined, it was, I think it's fair to say, a calculated or concerted risk on both sides. I didn't know if LinkedIn really wanted to do a single simple story and in the ways that I would want to do it. And LinkedIn didn't know whether I was going to be able to make this work or whether this was going to prove to be something valuable for the company. And so at the beginning, it was really me taking time to understand the history of the company, getting to know the CEO and other executives. And then we started to test the idea of LinkedIn having a unique point of view and see if it would resonate. So. A few months after I joined, which was I'm about a year in, so this is last, going into last summer, you might recall with the pandemic, everyone was talking about the great resignation, the big quit. And we were looking at our data, which is really unique. It's a real-time granular view of the labor market that has never existed before because of how many people we've got and the ways that people are publicly notifying when they change jobs or where they're at, even if they're not changing jobs, remote work taking hold we were noticing people weren't just leaving jobs, they were moving into new jobs. And so we started to tell the story of what we call the great reshuffle. And we started with our CEO out there talking about it. We started to put our data behind it. We started to have other executives talk about it. We started to see other people outside of LinkedIn talking about it. We eventually got our chief economist on 60 Minutes as the lead story in January, explaining to the world what was happening in our labor market and in our economy. And even Paul Krugman, I think a few weeks ago, finally conceded in his column that we weren't seeing a great big quit. We were instead seeing a reshuffling of talent. And so that's an example of what now I spend my time every day thinking about how do we do that in a bigger, bolder way. And the real sort of North Star for me is our vision at LinkedIn, which is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. I think LinkedIn is uniquely positioned through explanatory storytelling and the unique view and data we have to help mobilize a world around economic opportunity, similar to how we've mobilized the world around climate change. If you think about climate change, we now... and, And you think about it from Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, which was just calling out an issue without an organized plan, to then BlackRock and others starting to invest in a real way around the idea of sustainability To now, when we have at an individual level, an understanding of what to do, recycle, compost, at an organizational level, what to do in terms of carbon footprints, and then at a global level, what to do in terms of the accords we're seeing. Now, you can call out the gaps that we should be doing more, but we're at least organized. I think we can help us get organized around economic opportunity and do so in ways that will unlock more opportunity for more people. And what's great about economic opportunity is that Everyone who does well does good. Progress and prosperity go hand in hand. The more people whose talent is unleashed, who reach their potential, the more productive they are in the economy, the better off economies are, the better off societies are. So that's what drives me every day right now.
0: So is strategic communications in your current role kind of a public affairs position?
1: It's such a great question. I I will preface by saying I've had a conflicted relationship with communications as a function across my career. Obviously, (laughs) you and I, as you start as a reporter, you are a communicator. You and I grew up in a world where to go into communications, whether it's PR or an agency, somehow felt like selling out. It also felt less core to organizational growth. And so after the White House, I was struggling with what to do. Do I go back to become a reporter? Do I go into tech if so? Do I do communications? And across those two companies, I really deliberately tried to not be about communications, but be about core growth and how you could use communications, but also marketing and partnerships to build growth for for a startup. And then when I went to Facebook, I was on the policy team doing policy campaigns. And with Newsom, I was a public affairs campaign, managing that from an economic perspective. So I would say there are different, a bunch of different ways to define communications. And communications as a function is changing dramatically. The, the simple way to understand communications is there is owned content, earned content, owned is blog posts you do, podcasts like this, earned is media coverage you get, New York Times, 60 minutes. And then there is some level of paid promotion that people do with their content. I think of what I do as more of a campaign approach. So how do you take all of that, but then really add in partnerships that you could launch, coalitions you could build, and really track it against things that are not just core to the business, but also core to the impact that you want to have. So at some level, it is an iteration of how communications has worked. I think it's also an iteration of corporate social responsibility. A lot of people who are going into the corporate world are looking for a sense of impact. And so CSR, as it's defined, used to be largely about donation. The last slide on the deck, the .org to the company, was where they just gave out money. And sometimes it was related to the core product. Often it wasn't. We're now seeing, I think, a real push among not just consumers, but employees to see impact as core business out, core product out. And that's the beginnings of a new era for CSR, where I think communications and marketing and partnerships will all play an integral role. But it's how do you show up every day as a company and as a brand in a way that is about core business impact on the world and ways that you are going a mile deep and an inch wide on that area of impact to better the world while growing the business. And so I I think of where I live now is somewhere in between all of that.
0: Mm. So take us into a typical day on the job for you, Anish. What are you working on these days? We're doing this interview in mid-April 2022.
1: It's a great question because the timing is right for sort of a peek in. So I
0: sort of walked through what we built with the
1: Great Reshuffle as as a campaign. I am now trying to figure out for LinkedIn where we go next. How do we do that in a more deliberate, strategic way with a multi-year view? And so a lot of my day right now is what I would call internal sales, internal influencing. I think one of the things I'm realizing is that a lot of the early days of a career are about the doing. And then at some point, you start to transition into the thinking. And another way that we like to break that out is strategy and execution. And often those are bifurcated. People just worry about execution. People just worry about strategy. And when you do that, execution doesn't feel like it's got any level of strategy around it. And strategy feels like it's kind of a waste of time because it's not tethered to the day to day. I think for your listeners, one of the most important skill sets they can develop now is the ability to do both. The ability to be both a thinker and a doer. And you'll be in different moments across your career where one of those will be the main driver. But across your career, you want to be able to always do both. And as you get more senior in your career, you want to really stand out with your thinking, with your ability to deliver new insights and strategies for your organization. As you get to that level, you end up doing a lot of what I'm doing now, which is building internal support for big ideas that you want the company or organization to do. And so right now, a lot of my time with our executives and other leaders at the company is sort of engaging them on where we could go next with this explanatory storytelling, building support for where we could go next at a really strategic level, but then at an operational level, starting to think through, well, if we did that, what would that mean? What kind of resourcing would we need? What kind of metrics would we want to... Assign ourselves. How would we judge this work over the course of a year or three years? And so that's a lot of my everyday right now.
0: It's like you're building a campaign inside LinkedIn before you execute one on the outside.
1: Yeah, I, I often describe it as a startup within within rather than a startup on the outside. And so it's really exciting, but it's also one of those where I think you and I have forced ourselves into new environments where we've gotten used to the fact that hard things are hard and that life is messy and that's okay and that's part of the the growth curve that's part of learning as you do and so now i'm much more accustomed to it and i actually embrace the messiness of trying to start something new because you learn as you go you iterate as you go the way i'm describing this a year from now will be 10 times better than i'm describing it to you today because i'm going to get a better sense of it as i talk to everyone but for folks early in their career I think it can sometimes feel like you're you're trying to make everything clean. You want a day to day that you know exactly what you're going to want to do. You do everything with perfection. Cleanliness is what you're trying to to achieve, and actually messiness is what you want to achieve because your ability to get good at mess- messiness, to learn from messiness, to move messiness from one area to the next area as you sort of scale these ideas, that I think is becoming one of the more sought after skill sets and something that folks early in their career can think about and get accustomed to, and then we'll really have it as a competitive differentiator later on.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this K Cup mini episode of Time for Coffee. If you want to listen to our entire caffeinated career conversation, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T for C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the time for coffee website under the coaching tab at time the number 4 coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712 that's 202-236-5712